Well, this morning we come in our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews in this series of sermons to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. So we reach now the beginning of Hebrews 10. We'll be taking as our text verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4, the title of the sermon is Shadow and Substance. We've read the chapter, but it begins in verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. We have seen over a long course of time now how the book of Hebrews sets forth magnificently the superiority and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, the luster that belongs to his person, and all of the attending benefits and privileges which flow from the work which he has accomplished on behalf of his people. And most recently in this portion of the book of Hebrews, that supremacy has been set forth against the backdrop of a comparison between the Old and New Testaments, and really the relationship of the Old Testament era and the New Testament era after uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we continue to see here in chapter 10 is that in the process, um, these doctrinal riches, uh, which are opened up before us, really open up to us the depths of Christian experience. And, And it comes to us both directly and indirectly. It comes indirectly by way of contrasting the Old Testament believer's experience with the New Testament believer's experience. And then it comes directly in in terms of speaking, here are the implications for those who know the Lord in the current day, the implications of all that flows from what he has accomplished. So we come to Hebrews 10, and really the first 20 verses of this chapter are, are... reinforcing and driving home uh, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the sufficiency of his sacrifice to save his people to the uttermost. And then you come to verse 21, and really through the remainder of the chapter, and you have the application of that, the application to faith, the application to obedience, the application to perseverance in the Christian walk, and so on. And so chapter 10 is speaking about the present status of the Christian, right? The the present status of what the Christian life looks like in terms of a perfect standing before Almighty God, the privileges that are to be entered and enjoyed by every believing soul. And so in, in chapter 10 verses 1 to 4, we have set before us the deficiency, or you could say insufficiency, the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices to make anybody perfect, right? The deficiency of these sacrifices in terms of making anybody perfect. The conclusions in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And then in verses 5 and following, we have kind of the contrast. So verses 1 to 4 are setting forth in the foreground, are setting forth the Old Testament, 
And then in verses 5 and, and following, we have the background, which reinforce the full sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, which comes out uh, in verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's in contrast to verse 4. And so we have here this morning the insufficiency of the shadows, which are driving us to see the full sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the substance in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll note with the Lord's help three things this morning as we seek to open up and unpack uh, these four verses. First of all, we begin with the shadows. So this reference to the shadows in verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Now, this language, it's, it's referring to the Old Testament ceremonial law with its institutions and symbols. So just to be sure that we have all of this in our head, the, the reference with regards to shadows is referring to the priests of the Old Testament, the service of the priests of the Old Testament, the place in which the priests conducted their service within the tabernacle, and, and latterly uh, within uh, the temple. And so it includes, you know, everything, the, the priests themselves, their, their vestments, their garments. It included uh, all of the instruments that were there. You had the, the, the lampstand, and you had the showbread, and you had altars, and you had sacrifices and animals that were being sla- slain, and the sprinkling of, of blood, you had the burning of incense, and the list goes on and on and on, right? That's what we're referring to. That's what the passage is referring to as shadows here, the ceremonial ordinances. They, they served as types. They served as symbols. They served as signs. They were pointers so that the people could look at them, and they were pointing to something beyond themselves. They were pointing to the person of Jesus Christ and his work, all that he would accomplish, and so they served in that sense as shadows. And we can now c- kind of compile the, the ways in which this has been spoken of in the last uh, couple of chapters. So you go back to chapter 8, verse 5, speaking of the, the Old Testament ceremonies, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. This is in contrast to verse 2 of chapter 8, where you have the true tabernacle. In, in heaven itself. Or you go to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, For verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So it's earthy. It's uh, physical. It's, it, has, it engages the, the senses and so on. In verse 9 of chapter 9, which was a figure for the time then present. So it's described as a figure. Or in chapter 9, verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified uh, with, with these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Right, so all of this language, patterns, figures, shadows, right, this is the language that's been used to refer to the same thing, to the ceremonial System And it's not unique here uh, to, to Hebrews. So we're, we're having, in terms of having the Bible pressed into our minds, or better, our minds pressed into the mold of the Bible, 
The Bible is teaching us to think of the ceremonial institutions of the Old Testament as shadows. Paul brings this out when he writes to the Colossians. In Colossians 2, verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Or you go to Galatians. Galatians is dealing with the same problem as we've been seeing in Hebrews, dealing with the Judaizers. And there in Galatians 4, uh, verse 9, it says, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. So there, it's not shadows, but it's weak and beggarly elements. That's the language. So all of this, we kind of pull all of these things together and it fleshes out for us uh, the biblical picture of how we think of these things. So here in in Hebrews 10 verse 1, uh, the ceremonies are referred to as shadows. And this is actually emphatic in, in the original language. It's placed first, they're shadows of good things that are uh, to come. So what's a shadow? A shadow is the outline of the substance of a thing. You can, children, you can be outside and it's a sunny day and you look in the yard and there's the shadow of the tree. And so you can look over at the tree, you see the large trunk and up and the boughs and the branches and leaves and so on. That's the tree. On the ground, you see the outline of the tree. In the shadow, you can run across that shadow and you can look at it and so on and so forth, right? That's the picture that's being given to us. It's the outline. The ceremonies were an outline of eternal blessings that were going to be found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The shadow has no substance in itself. You can't go to the shadow of a tree and cut branches and then burn them in the stove. You can't climb the shadow like you climb a tree. It doesn't have any substance in and of itself, right? It just projects the form. And it's true with the shadow of a person. I might see your shadow. I can't see you. You're around the corner. But when I look at your shadow, I say, you know, I know who that is. I can tell by the shape of the the shadow, the outline. I can tell if you're moving by the gate and other things. There are things we recognize about a person in their shadow but it's a representation of the body, size and shape. Here we're being told the image itself is Jesus Christ. So these Old Testament ceremonies were the shadow. They gave the outline, but the image itself is Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of the good things to come. Right? They were a shadow of those good things. He is the embodiment. He is the body of good things to come itself. And so the shadows pointed to good things. They pointed to blessings and privileges that now have come in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament didn't didn't live in an era of the accomplishment of these things. The accomplishment of redemption had not yet come. They were anticipating it. Whereas we live after the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Christ has been manifest in the flesh. He has come and he has secured and purchased and provided and accomplished all of the redemption in his person for his people. And so we have shadows. We're going to think in terms of shadows. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself at this point, why is so much space given to this? I mean, we're in chapter 10. We've been in in Hebrews for quite a long time, and we've been really since chapter 7, we've been, we've been here for a long time. Why so much space given to this? And some of you, you, you you'll, your answer will be immediate. Well, because, you know, it's, it's setting forth the superiority and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's absolutely true. That's the right answer, because studying these details opens up the Old Testament, which then opens up the glory of Christ and shows us uh, something of, of his, his majesty. So that's true. But you might still have this lingering question, why? Yes, we, we understand that and praise the Lord for that. But why all the painstaking detail? Why all the painstaking detail, especially when after, you know, shortly after the apostolic age, there are so few Jews in the church, right? This is being written to the Hebrews it's being written to Jewish Christians who are on the, the, that transition period from Old to New Testament, helping them sort all of that out. But the book of Hebrews is a permanent book in the canon of the New Testament. It's, it's here for all of the hundreds and, and now thousands of years since then. Why, why would the church, which is composed predominantly of Gentiles over the ages, need so much painstaking detail with regards to these things. So that's, I think, a, a legitimate question that some of you uh, may, be, may be asking. And the, the, answer, the answer is this, I think. Because the Judaizing principle that is being addressed in these portions of God's word is perpetual. So this, what do I mean by Judaizing principle? You know, these, these New Testament Jews, they're thinking in terms of, well, we want to hold on to uh, these Old Testament ceremonies. We want to we carry them over. We want to incorporate them into the life and the warp and woof of the New Testament church. And the Lord is saying no, because Christ has come. These things have been fulfilled and put away. Their purpose is finished, etc. But there's this tug, this tendency to want to, to bring all of that in. That principle, though, though um, it's obviously relevant for, for Jews who come to faith in Christ today, but it's relevant for Gentiles as well, because the Lord knew that this tug and tendency, this Judaizing principle, would be a perpetual temptation throughout the history of the world for the New Testament church. The Lord foresaw the rise of the whore of Babylon, right, of, of Rome. The Lord foresaw, you know, the, the, what that would entail. So with the rise of, of Roman Catholicism and so on, you have this coming into full-fledged dominance, right? The Roman Catholic Church, their ministers are called priests, drawn from Old Testament symbolism. Their, their, their priests are adorned in all sorts of, like, get-up, Right, all their vestments and all their clothes and special stuff that they wear. Right, you have you have with them. Uh, they they bring altars 
into the church. There's, there's altars in the, in the New Testament church, and there are alleged sacrifices that are, are being made, and they're burning incense, and they have instruments and choirs and a whole host of all sorts of things, holy days and, and, and all sorts of sensual or sensate things that they bring into the church. And something similar, parallel, is found within Eastern Orthodoxy. After the Protestant Reformation, you have Anglicans, right? Anglicans kind of stand with one foot uh, in, in Rome and one foot in, in Protestantism, right? They're, they're the ones who were killing our covenanting fathers in the, in the 17th century. And then you, you look at how uh, this, this pernicious error has crept into the, to, to evangelical Protestantism, right? So we have altars with altar calls and stuff in Protestant churches. What's an altar doing? In, in, a, in a Protestant church. And you think of how the worship, right, has been influenced, not reflecting the simplicity and purity of New Testament worship, but rather bringing in with this principle so many things that the Lord has put out and so on. And so, yeah, the painstaking details there for a reason. This principle is one that's perpetual. It's one that we need lodged. And so children, you know, I, I want this to be burned into your minds, Right, children, you, you're growing up and you're accustomed to the simplicity and purity of New Testament worship reflected in our assembly and so on and so forth. You shouldn't think of this just as being Presbyterian or as being Reformed or as being Free Church or something. You should think of it in terms of being apostolic, New Testament, biblical worship, the worship that God has appointed and ordained. And you say, well, pastor, why? why? Okay, we, we see that. Why is that important? Well, it's, it's important, first of all, so that children, as you're growing up, you have an eye for these things, right? You have, you have a heart for these things. What, what's going on here when we begin to see Old Testament ceremonies being uh, imposed upon New Testament churches and incorporated into New Testament churches? You, bells and whistles should be going off. There's something, something desperately wrong here. And the question then comes, what's at stake in all of this? So we can see, okay, it's biblical, it's a principle, it's a doctrine, the Bible teaches it, so it's important for that reason. But beyond that, what, what exactly is at stake in terms of getting this principle, this truth, into our hearts and minds? Well, as we've been seeing in all of this painstaking detail, it is an attack that undermines the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ's completed work. People say, well, yeah, these things of worship, if you have high church worship, it doesn't really matter, and so on and so forth. Okay, maybe it's not exactly like the apostles did it. What's at stake here? Way more than people realize. Right? This is putting Christ, the cross, the gospel at the center. And it's saying that these things are actually eroding, attacking, displacing, and undermining the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's why it's important, children, that you understand the biblical principles that the Lord is laying out in our hearts and minds here and to be alert to these things. We do not turn from the substance, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, turn away from his person and instead turn to the shadows. Right? In this case, children, we stay out of the shadows. We stay with him 
who is our all in all, who is our Lord, our King, the only head of his church. And so first of all, we have the shadows. Secondly, we, have, we see that the, sh- the shadows' inability to make perfect. So the shadows, their inability, the, the ceremony's inability to make perfect. Look at verse 10 again. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the, in, the shadow's inability to make perfect. Notice in the language there, verse 1, can never. Right? This is inability. The shadow, the ceremonies, the sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifices, their inability to make perfect. And now you can, you can see the flow of argument here. The, the verse begins with four, right? drawing a conclusion on all of the wonderful things we saw last Lord's Day at the end of, of chapter 9. Four, these sacrifices are never able to make men perfect before the Lord. Now you'll notice just a word of explanation here. It says, which they offered year by year continually make, make the, the comers thereunto perfect. Notice the word continually there. Right, that word could be translated forever. Uh, that word could be translated in perpetuity. You know, forever would be another way, but continually. What you need to understand is that we, we, we read this, sometimes we read this, and we attach continually to the words that go before it. When in fact the word continually is to be attached with the words that follow it. So it's not they offered year by year continually. But it is they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Forever make the comers thereunto perfect. Right? So this is, this is important in terms of understanding the text. The sacrifices were offered year by year. Now that, that language makes us realize, okay, we're still talking about Leviticus 16 now. We're still talking about the Day of Atonement. Those sacrifices that were once a year, year by year, offered on the highest and most holy day in Israel's calendar, the day of of atonement. And he's saying, in essence, if, if those sacrifices on the day of the atonement were ineffectual to make people perfect, how much more all the other sacrifices, the ordinary ones that took place all the time, in the life of, of, of Israel. So it says they, they weren't able to make the, the people perfect. And perfect here doesn't mean um, sinless. But perfect is, is referring to completion. It isn't able to make them complete. It's not able to bring them to completion in terms of their, a satisfactory relationship with God. It wasn't, wasn't, it's speaking of something objective, in other words. There, it wasn't able to deliver, these sacrifices couldn't deliver the objective standing that was necessary to be acceptable before the Lord. After all, what does God require? Children, what does God require? Of every sinner, every man, woman, boy, and girl, every son or daughter born of Adam, what does the Lord require? Absolute perfection. Perfect conformity to the law of God. Complete and comprehensive obedience to the standard 
of his law. Right? This, this cuts against the grain of natural man's thinking. Natural man thinks to himself, well, you know, we, we should be as good as we can be. We should, we should try to do a lot that's good. Yes, we're going to have things that, that, that uh, accompany that that are amiss, wrong, sinful, mistakes, weaknesses, or whatever. No, that's not the standard that the Lord gives us. The standard is perfect conformity to the likeness of God himself. His law is a transcript of his own holiness. And so what does God require? It requires perfect conformity to his law. And that means not, that's not just no guilt. It's not just no sin, transgression, iniquity, or guilt that comes from our, our sins. But it actually it requires that plus... It requires flawless, perfect obedience to all that the law demands of us. And the point here is that killing animals, sacrificing animals, no matter how many hundreds of thousands of them might be sacrificed, could never secure this. Sacrifices could never secure this perfect conformity to God's law without guilt and full and complete obedience to God's, God's law. Right? That, 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 in fact, is obvious. I mean, to say it is to immediately recognize it. Of course, the killing of animals can't, cannot secure this, this thing of a perfect standing before the Lord. Well, the question is, why did God appoint then for these Old Testament people, to bring them? Why, why did he appoint for them to bring these sacrifices if they are ineffectual, if they're inadequate, if they're unable to secure perfection? Why would the Lord in his divine will appoint these things? Well, there's several things, and we've seen some of them already. First of all, it set before the people the holiness of God. What they needed was to see God and to see him as he's revealed himself and as he truly is. God is holy, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy. They needed to see that as a consequence, the wages of sin is death. Sacrifices conveyed that. You want to talk about death in mass every day, the slaughter of one animal after another after another, on, on some occasions, there would be countless numbers of, you know, the, the blood would run like a river. The wages of sin is death that's impressed upon them. They had to be brought to acknowledge their guilt and guiltiness before the Lord. In these ordinances, they were brought to see, I have sinned and, and I'm guilty. But most of all, in and through these sacrifice, sacrifices, they needed to be pointed to the true source of salvation. They needed to be pointed to the Redeemer and the Redeemer and the redemption that he would bring. And in doing so, they needed to be called to faith, to be drawn out, to exercise their faith, having been pointed to the Redeemer and his redemption, to be drawn out to exercise faith and confidence in him and in his ability to atone for all of their sins, to look to him. And so these means, these 
ceremonies. You know, they, they depicted cleansing. They depicted the restoration of fellowship with God. And they, were, they had their temporary and important function. Indeed, if you lived under the Old Testament era, to refuse them, to say, no, I, I will not have a part in this, I will not participate in this, was tantamount to the rejection of Christ, who was signified in them. Which is why in the Old Testament law, your refusal resulted in you being cut off. Right? That's the language in the Old Testament for excommunicated from the church because of your refusal of Jesus Christ himself as the only redeemer of, of God's elect. And so it, it underlines, doesn't it, the fact that what you need first, what I need first, is atonement for sin. In any and all approach to God, what is necessary first is the atonement for our sins. You, you can't draw nigh to God in worship without this. Some of you think you can. You think, I can come up to the house of God. I can come into the public assembly. I can be a part of the visible church. I can, I can, I can conduct uh, worship before God's throne and so on. On your own terms and on your own merits and in your own standing, and without the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not only presumption, it is. But it is actually, in many ways, worse. Right? It, is, it flies in the face of God and is, is, repulsive, is repulsive to Him. We can't have any standing in the courts of heaven without Christ's atonement to cleanse us from our sin, so that our persons are accepted on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done, and so that the worship we offer is accepted and cleansed through the blood of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, th this should make sense to all of us, because when we come to worship, we're, we're praising the Lord, we're adoring the Lord, we are worshiping the Lord, we're expressing gratitude to the Lord, and so on. But you can't thank him if you haven't been forgiven by him. Right? This is completely upside down. To, to thank him for something you haven't actually received or appropriated in terms of his redeeming work. No, the believer comes up to the house of the Lord with hearts filled with joy. I joyed when they to the house of God said, go up to me. Because there is this sense of blessing and bounty and gratitude that we have been cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ and the desire to respond with, with, with that love and, and thanksgiving to him. So the believer comes drawing near with contrition on the basis of Christ's own cross. On the basis of Christ's own cross work. And so this is a searching question for you. You know, you've come, to, you've come to public worship this morning. And it's good you've done so. You know, it's good, you know, in one sense we can say, to be under the means of grace, to be under the preaching of the gospel. This is a privilege none of us deserve. No one deserves to be under 
to be in a place where Christ himself is set forth and where Christ himself is present with us. So that's, that's something that we, we prize. But some of you have come up to the house of God this morning without ever thinking, much less asking the question, why? Beyond duty and privilege. Not asking the question, how? How, how can I ascend God's holy hill? You know, to take the language of the Psalms that we sing. I have to have clean hands and a pure heart in order to come up that holy hill. Well, look at yourself. Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? Far from it. Your hands are stained with sin. They testify against you. You look within and your heart is defiled, polluted, grimy with sin. All of the sins that have gone coursing through your heart. How in the world are you to come up God's holy hill to worship him? The answer is to be found only in Christ Jesus. Right? All that we heard about the blood, the Lord washing his people from their sins in his own blood, his sacrifice atoning for the guilt of sin, the Lord making us acceptable for him. It's, it's by coming to faith in Jesus Christ and placing all of our confidence in him and what he has done and nothing else, nothing outside him, nothing beyond him, nothing within us, but Christ is our all in all, ha hanging everything, body and soul, time and eternity, on who he is and what he's done. With that confidence, the soul is able to come and fall down before the Lord and worship him in faith, in spirit, and in truth. Thirdly, the shadows are insufficient to take away sin. Thirdly, the shadows, these ceremonies, are insufficient to take away sin. Verse 2, for then, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. You can see how the argument is, is, is flowing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. For then, right, this is supporting what verse 1 says, would they, that is the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered? What did they secure? And how does it contrast with what the Lord Jesus Christ has secured? But you'll notice that the emphasis in both is what is secured for us, for the believer. It's salvation, manward, if you will. What, what comes to us, what flows to us as a consequence of this? And he says, well, the proof of the impotency of these sacrifices, their inability, the proof is the fact that they were recurring. The proof is the fact that they had to be done over and over and over again. Because think about it, if you came to the sacrifice and it itself made you perfect, gave you a right standing before the Lord that was, was permanent and so on, then you wouldn't need another sacrifice in the evening sacrifice or tomorrow or in this case when it's speaking of Leviticus 16, next year. Right? You wouldn't need any more because the last one, the previous one, did it. It secured what was needed. If it made you perfect, they would have ceased. 
because they were no longer needed. But the sacrifices did not cease. Therefore, they did not make them perfect. Logic is pretty straightforward. Only a sacrifice of intrinsic merit. Only a sacrifice of infinite value could ever secure permanent, final, definitive satisfaction for sin and acceptance with God. And if there was such a sacrifice that did have infinite merit, that was of of intrinsic value, then there would never be a need for anything additional to it. You wouldn't be able to supplement it or repeat it because it had in itself secured what it intended. And the answer, of course, is obvious. Only Christ's completed, final, definitive sacrifice for sin provides that. Nothing else. Nothing outside of it. Because his sacrifice for sin does indeed have infinite value. And speaks about those purged because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Here purged is the idea of the removal of guilt, the scrubbing away, the, the cleansing from guilt. So if you're thinking theologically, it's speaking of justification, right? Acceptance before God, being declared righteous in God's sight, the removal of the guilt of sin the removal of the condemning power of that guilt. He says, because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. The word conscience is actually, in the Greek, a compound word. Two two words put together. It basically means, well, you can see it in English. Con, with, and then shens, right? You see maybe the word science there or whatever. It's the word knowledge. So it means with knowledge. So conscience literally is with knowledge. It says no more conscience of sins. Now, don't, don't slip here. It does not say no consciousness of sin. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say no consciousness of sin. Why? Because every believer, Old and New Testament, still has that. Indeed, it's the source of our greatest grief. The, 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 believe, the, the redeemed believer in a state of grace who's been born again and converted, they continue to have a consciousness of sin. That's something that indeed continues. Indeed, to claim otherwise, to claim perfection, sinless perfection or whatever, is flagrantly unbiblical. You think of First, first John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Or you think of the Proverbs, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he who confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. And so there is a consciousness of sins that, um, that remains. So what does it mean then? When it says, um, when it speaks of there being no more conscience of sins, it's referring to the freedom 
from the sense of terror that the conscience bears under the load of guilt. Right? Freedom from the sense of terror. It's, it's, it's the recognition that sin is not for the believer any longer imputed to me. Right? It, is, it has been imputed to the sin bearer, to my substitute, to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so we're free then from the sense of terror that comes from being loaded with that guilt of sin. So you, you go to places like Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? The believer in a state of grace, is liberated from that overwhelming sense of condemnation, of being under the wrath of God, of being a lawbreaker of the sentence of death that is emblazoned over top of us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No more conscience of sins in that respect. We know The believer knows that the wages have been paid. Wages of sin have been paid in full by the substitute, by Christ. And so the light of the conscience, the conscience which is with knowledge, right, has is a light that enables us to see right and wrong. The light of conscience sees that the believer's been cleansed, that we've been cleansed we are not condemned by the Lord. Now, the Old Testament scene, of course, had this in part. They had it in anticipation of what Christ would do, but they, they did have that sense of liberty from sin. Otherwise, there would be no joy in the Old Testament, and the, the Old Testament is full of joy. You know, how many of the Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 65, Psalm 103, we could go on and on, are we expressing and were they expressing joy of the blessedness of having sins pardoned, of being cleansed, of sins being separated from them as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more, the blessing of sins not being imputed to us and so on. So it's not, we're not dismissing the fact that that is, that that is a reality. You say, okay, well, we understand that a person who comes to faith in Christ and who is justified by faith alone enjoy this privilege of no longer being under condemnation. However, what about the sins after justification? So you've been justified once for all by faith and the the righteousness of Christ is is imputed, credited to your account. What about the sins that follow after that? What do we do with those? And why is it, if we're justified, why do we continue to confess sins? You say, well, because the Lord told us to, right? He taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we're to confess our sins, acknowledge our trespasses, and so on. That's true. But why did he teach us to do that? Why is it a regular, habitual, daily, all-day function of the Christian to continue to confess sins and to repent of them? Well, this could take a lot longer than I hope it will, but let me, let me just give you a summary. So, we have in justification, we have in the, 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 the perfect work of, accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have justification. 
And the believer is acceptable in God's sight, acceptable before his throne. And that's permanent. And that's irreversible. That's undiminishable. That's unalterable. It's absolutely once and for all in the soul of the Christian. So that there's never condemnation that can come over top of them. And that, that's something that's perpetual throughout their life and so on and so forth. Their sins are pardoned. They are cleansed. They are accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's speaking in terms of judicially, legally. We are, we are, we are pardoned from all of our sins before the Lord. There's another element, and this, this falls into the arena of sanctification, if you will. The believer continues to sin. And in those sins, there's a breach of fellowship. Our sins can create a breach of fellowship with our Father in heaven, with the triune God. And they do indeed create a breach of fellowship. And there can be in a person, a person's going on in sin and they're not confessing and repenting of those, there can be a sense of distance. The Lord's distant from us, far away. There's coldness and there's, not, there's all sorts of attending uh, consequences that, that flow from that. Now, the believer is to keep their conscience keen. And they, are, they continue in a state of grace and in dependence upon Christ's accomplished work to acknowledge their transgressions before the Lord, to own them for all that God says of them with humility and with contrition and pain and sorrow to acknowledge that we've sinned against him, that our sins are inexcusable, and to plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Th- th- this, rather than being judicial, as we saw earlier, is paternal, if you will. Right? You, you, don't, you don't cease from becoming a son or daughter of the living God. But there can be, because of our rebellion and disobedience, barriers that are raised in, in that, that relationship. And so there has to be I continue to acknowledge this, and much, much, much more could be said on that point, but that gives us at least uh, a nub of, of uh, an answer to that, that question. In verse 3, we have to hasten on here. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again of sins every year. So God appointed this. He, in fact, specifies it in the law that they would, in fact, remember their sins, that they would, in fact, be brought to acknowledge their sins. And this is true in the New Testament as well that there is a remembrance and acknowledgement of our sins, as we've just heard. But in the Old Testament, they were confessing their sins, looking forward to the atonement. In the New Testament, the remembrance of sins is always wed with the application of the once-for-all atonement for sin that's already transpired, right? The context is, is different. There's a fresh application, a fresh imparting of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice to the soul of of the believer. We have the once-for-all atonement already accomplished. Really, in a sense, what we are obtaining is a sense of that pardon. We're brought to a fresh sense, and with that fresh joy, love, gratitude, and so on, of the pardon that's already secured. teaches us, of course, to watch against sin, because the believer loathes nothing more than, than their own folly creating a breach of fellowship with the Lord or distance and so on. The desire to, 
glorify God in sin for his mercy and to magnify the glory of, of his grace. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats and of goats should take away sins. This is the conclusion of this, of this section. Since, it, since the Old Testament sacrifices were only a shadow, uh, since they had to be repeated, since they, you know, conscience of sin still remained, since, since they were not even designed by God to accomplish that, that perfection, it's impossible that they in themselves would take away sins by themselves. The sacrifices were never, ever designed by God to do so. God never intended for the blood of bulls and goats to be the mechanism for for cleansing sin in themselves. They only represented the way. They were shadows. They were pointers. They were types. They were pictures. They were pointing the way that the Lord would bring in order to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Because after all, no creature can satisfy God's demands. Bulls and goats and the shedding of their blood can't do it. But actually, no creature is adequate to satisfy God's demands. Even if a sinless, unfallen angel were to be in some way sacrificed, they don't have a body, but if they were to be sacrificed, it would be inadequate to take away sins. No man could certainly do it, no mere man. Only one who is God-man. Only the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. True God, true man. Two natures in one person. Because only he, as such, has infinite merit. Only he, such, has intrinsic value that is adequate in his sacrifice to atone for all of the sins of all of God's elect people. You say, well, you know, if... If all of this is true, then, you know, we're, we're the Old Testament saints saved. I probably don't even need to ask the question to, to this congregation, but the answer, of course, is yes. But not by the blood of bulls and goats. Yes, they were saved, but not by the blood of bulls and goats. They were saved by looking through the shadow to the substance in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to chapter 11, by faith Abel, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, and so on. Right? These, this catalog of those who were redeemed and converted and in the state of grace and regenerate and so on. But it was by looking, as chapter 11 makes clear, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his person and work. They used the means of these Old Testament ceremonies to the end, which is Christ himself. We preached Isaiah 12 last week in the afternoon service, all of the talk of the salvation of God, God as our salvation, the wells of salvation open to us and the waters drawn out from it, right? The Old Testament saints enjoyed the saving mercies that were to come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion, if, if, in looking at these Old Testament shadows, if it was true of the Old Testament institutions, then it's true of all institutions, including New Testament ones. They all must lead us to Christ. The Christian Sabbath in the New Testament 
singing of psalms, preaching of the word, reading of the word, prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, vows, all of that is to lead us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all means to the same end, which is Jesus Christ himself. You think of the, the glorious work of the Trinity, the Father sends the Son in order to purchase salvation. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and He takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. The Spirit brings us to the Son. And then the Son, through His saving work, brings us to the Father. And in all of this, right, the whole movement of, of, of salvation is in order that we might be brought into saving fellowship and communion with God Himself by the work of Jesus Christ. The substance is the center, and the center is Jesus Christ. And so that is being pressed home upon us. Christ is the center, and we are to be drawn to him and to fall in love with him and to serve him and adore him and to yield our lives to him and to live for him and for his glory and his cause and his kingdom. Christ is all. He is all in all. To have him is to have everything. To be without him is to be left bereft of everything, is to have nothing. Christ is the one. And so here in these first four verses, it's the negative, if you will, in order to make way for the positive. It's saying, here's the insufficiency of the Old Testament ceremonies in order in verse 5 and following to reinforce in our hearts and affections the full sufficiency that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Well, let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, how thankful we are for the glory of Jesus Christ set forth to us in the gospel and in the pages of Holy Scripture. Oh, grant that we would have eyes to see him and in seeing him to be drawn to him. Grant that we would be given the gift of faith in Christ Jesus, that we would be taught to rejoice in the Lord. Give, O oh Lord, that we would not turn to the right hand or to the left. Keep us, O oh Lord, from the shadows returning to the weak and beggarly elements, but rather to hold fast to the head, which is Christ Jesus. Grant, O God, that he would have the glory, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen.